I guarantee you this. If an elephant does show up in Westeros, Night King's getting one. <laughs> I'm not trading my dragon for an elephant. Welcome back to Shad on TV, Game of Thrones edition, the unofficial podcast companion piece to the juggernaut HBO series, Game of Thrones. I'm one of your hosts, Gene Lyons, and alongside me is my co-host, Big D, Dick Ebert. Good evening. This is our deep dive episode where we look at this week's episode of Game of Thrones and share our insights, research, and opinions. This week's episode was entitled The Dragon and the Wolf. It was the season seven finale in which Tyrion tries to save Westeros from itself. The Starks execute Littlefinger. The wall comes down. And finally, boat sex. So what was your take on it second time through? Second time through, what I realized is, you know, the first time I thought we had a lot of closure, a lot of the loops got sealed up tight. We had nice completion to a lot of storylines. Second time through, I went, oh my God, there's actually so much open going into season eight, and it's going to be a very, very hard 500 or so days until we get the next season. For me, the first time through, it seemed like it was a long episode. You could feel the the hour and a half, and there's a lot going on. I think when I you're not watching it that initial you know premiere night with the you know, all the anxiety and the buildup, I don't think you enjoyed as much. This I sat back, let it wash over me. I had less problems than the first one, as minor as they were. I still thought the entire Theon crotch kicking was a joke, but the conversation with John before I liked. So for me, just as good and equally excited for season eight. I think what I really appreciated was how much they've changed the landscape in just one episode. You know, normally you have a whole season to to build up what's going on on this board for this Game of Thrones. And in this case, uh, we thought we knew what was going on. We thought we had a stable board uh, that would have some, you know, climax. And then we'd go into season eight, kind of knowing where we were. But we saw so much change uh, in this episode uh, from alliances uh, to fortunes, to, uh, you know, the, and obviously the big one was the wall coming down. I think everyone saw it coming, but this made it a certainty. Yeah, and we still don't know necessarily where people's loyalties lie. Uh, you know, there's questions with Tyrion acting a bit shady on the boat. We don't know. Uh, did Jamie defect? Uh, there's a lot of questions. So as much as the board seems set, there's still a lot of question. And uh, that famous quote that they use as a voiceover, and I think the second trailer, the lone wolf dies, but the pack survives. I'm starting to feel like it's Cersei, the lone wolf out there, but who knows? She might come to her senses. All right, so that brings us to the points we're going to talk about in this episode of On the Throne. We're going to talk about how episode seven shuffled the deck in this game, uh, where the forces of the living stand for this epic battle that they're facing against the dead. Uh, also, wild cards for season eight, what we don't know, what's up in the air, what kind of shocked us about uh, the finale and how it impacts the show going forward. Also, what's up with Tyrion? Uh, what was that boat scene all about? What the Night King wants, ultimately. And John and Danny, do they have the upper hand in this battle with the Night King or are they at a disadvantage? So we'll go over all of that. Plus, we're going to introduce... Uh, an award in its inaugural year. Uh, we're going to do the Thronies, so we will have an opportunity for the fans to vote uh, for their favorites from this season. Uh, we'll get into that at the tail end of the podcast. So first, let's get started 
on how Episode 7 shuffled the deck. Now, I talked about how different players came into different positions here. And the first one for me uh, that was the big one, despite the wall coming down, was Jamie abandoning Cersei. I think a lot of people wanted to know how much abuse he could take before he turned on her, how much disgust would uh, build up until he realized that maybe she was not the woman of his dreams. And I think we saw that in this episode. Uh, That was my original take. Upon second viewing, much like... Cersei has a plan. She intended to find a reason to walk away from that first gathering, to have Tyrion then come, make a big plea, to then acquiesce and decide to go north. They all know that Cersei wouldn't give in right away. So she played that out to make it more believable. That same feeling just kept creeping into my head with the the Jaime and Cersei. She's overtly mean to him. She calls him the dumbest Lannister. She mocks the fact that he wasn't paying attention to father's lessons. I almost feel, and I might be crazy here, that she intentionally is pushing him to get him to travel north, potentially, with the information that she's not planning to honor her deal. Is there a potential she's doing like a, you know, a a double, you know, reverse that she's going to actually use Jamie's information to trick them and somehow try to flank them and actually take out more of the northern forces? You know, Big D, when we met, I thought you were just a really nice guy. And here I'm seeing there's some devious action going on in that head because that didn't even occur to me. But now that I think about it, yeah, this makes perfect sense. Why would she let somebody who knows her entire plan just walk away? And we saw in that scene, and we asked this on the Instacast, why does the mountain uh, draw a blade but not strike him down? It seems that she'd want to let him go. And we talked about whether you know Cersei was conspiring with the mountain. A, a, to- a totally different way to look at this is that the mountain obviously is not a normal person. I mean, he's, he's not having his own thoughts. He doesn't get off work and go have a beer at the pub. He is, for all intents and purposes, a zombie. And I do wonder if her her uh, thoughts uh, or her feelings control the mountain in some way. Um, and in that sense that, you know, he held off because she knew she wanted to hold off. Some people could see it as an emotional response. Other people could see it as this is part of her plan. So I like that idea. I wonder, too, about how she controls him, because there's obviously not too much going going on in that mushy head of his. And I watched carefully this time where she and Tyrion are having the interaction, and Tyrion's trying to push her as hard as he can to get her to kill him. She lashes out verbally. The mountain doesn't move. So maybe she's got some hand signals or she's already kind of predetermined and and told him what to do because he didn't react too quick to that white coming out of the box. So maybe he's losing a step. Maybe he's not the uh, undisputed, undefeatable guardian of the past. But she didn't just let Jamie walk out with vital information. She drove him out. She told him, you don't walk away from me. You do-. She did everything but you know give him his saddlebag put him on a horse, uh, give him a glove for his hand, and kick him out the door. Now, in that conversation with Jamie, we realized that Euron was faking everybody out, which is odd in and of itself. Like, uh, we had somebody write in and say, well, <laughs> what would happen if they're like, no, actually, whites can swim quite well. Like, oh, shit. Um, <laughs> I still I got to go to the bathroom. I'm out of here. No, I think they just would have come up with some other drama, much like Cersei was inevitably going to walk away. Maybe that's why he provoked the fight with Theon, to you know, disrupt the entire meeting, and they kick Euron out. Oh, I like that. So, man, you are on it today. All right, so Euron, we find out he's going to go ferry the Golden Company. Uh, he is off to Essos to go get them. 
And that's obviously bringing in a new fighting force for the Lannisters, not necessarily evening it out, but at least giving them a little more firepower. But that also brings us to the next point, which is Theon uh, has said that he's off to rescue Yara, um, amazingly, and probably the worst scene of the episode. He's off to rescue Yara. Everybody's chanting Yara. He's going to go get him. Now, this sets up a showdown between Theon and Euron. You know, I had this later on in kind of an unknowns for season eight, and I think I'll address it now because it's more fitting. Everybody's been complaining about the Theon redemption arc, and and what the hell is a redemption arc? Because the characters are all shades of gray. They're not black and white. Good people do bad things. Bad people do good things. What if Theon's only reason for still being in the story isn't to go save Yar? Maybe he's going to attempt that. But what if in doing that, he somehow stops Euron from actually being able to get the Golden Company back? So his last act maybe saved the sister and also deprived Cersei and the Lannisters of that 20,000 cell swords, horses, and elephants. Well, I hope he displays some new talent in order to do that because we saw that he couldn't hold Winterfell. Uh, He can't win in a fight one-on-one and, you know, aside from taking crotch shots and somehow miraculously beating a guy. So it's going to take some real magic from this show to make Theon a hero. No, I, I figured it out upon second viewing how he beat the guy. He didn't beat him. If you watch it, the guy's a bit out of shape. He's a heavier guy. He gets winded from beating the piss out of Theon. When he's telling him, stay down, he's on his hands or on his knees. He's going, just stay down. Stay down. So Theon tired him out with his face as a punching bag. So between the groin and using his uh, giant piece of meat on the top of his shoulders, that's his defense. It's to take a beating. So most guys who are getting winded in that sort of situation, you know what they do? They kill the other guy. That's what happens in the real world. (laughs) Or at least with pirates. Exactly. Now, the other thing we know from this episode is that the Army of the Dead has broken through the wall. Uh, They have a dragon. They're marching south. I know a lot of people were pissed because they're like, what is shooting out of the dragon? We don't know. I don't know if it matters. And another common complaint was that it's a magical wall. How does an ice dragon break through it? Which I'm like, okay, A, what do we know about magical walls? Nothing. And B, what do we know about ice dragons? Pretty much nothing. So to say it's outside the realm of possibility is a little silly. Yeah, I was embarrassed. I Somebody on Twitter had commented, do you think the dragon will breathe fire or ice? Me being the logical fool I am, I said, well, for it to, to shoot anything but fire would be some kind of require a physiological change. And the, the person was like, well, you know, don't the whites somehow move around when they don't have muscle tissue? And I was like, eh, okay, point taken. So I'm not upset now when I see dragons flying with holes in the wings. I just accept it. I love that all my friends from D&D, without missing a beat, just went, oh, it's arcane magic, like clearly. Because even with those holes in the wing, he's fast. I don't know whether that's aerodynamic. There's some kind of ducting going on. He was whipping around, and he somehow now seems to be able to shoot blue flame consistently. There's no strafing runs. That final shot to take the wall down was a consistent blue flame for about 18 seconds. He's like a blowtorch. Again, one of the things I found was really interesting about that whole scene is that people were kind of complaining about the logic of it. And if you step back again on the second viewing, I I kind of try to look at it in a Zen way with no judgment. It looked really great. I mean, again, if somebody told me that I was going to see a television scene with a dragon shooting, you know, blue, whatever the hell at a 
gigantic ice wall and it would be tumbling and people would be running for their lives and it would look realistic. How do you make something fantastic look realistic? Well, they figured it out. My favorite, though, was the uh, the mass of the, the undead army standing. And as the flames are taking down the wall, you can see the the light reflecting off of the faces, almost like a, a large group watching fireworks in the sky. Impressive shot. And for the trouble that they had in season, was it three or four with the first time in the Marine fighting pits with, with Drogon, with the dragon looking rubbery, and it looked comical. Whatever it is, they've fixed it. Because these dragons and these scenes, they couldn't be any better. Also, one of the great advantages of having a mindless army controlled by just a few lieutenants, they marched very orderly through that pass. So, yeah, no pushing, no shoving. Well, you got to figure they don't have any gear to carry. It's not That's like they have true. backpacks and That's rolling right. bags. So, the other thing we figured out uh, now is obviously boat sex. Uh, John and Danny are allies and lovers. This is a, again, a shift in the show. We now have. An unbreakable alliance between the two unless somebody becomes jilted. So this unites North and South in this battle. It puts Cersei even at more of a disadvantage. Uh, but it does create a vulnerability between the two that could be played on. Did you feel that the voiceover narration was a bit heavy-handed? The second time through for me, I didn't realize how they'd lined up Bran's and he loved my aunt. Right as John is walking in the door, followed by and she loved him. Did it feel a bit too heavy-handed? We get what's going on in the scene. We've been watching the show. Honestly, it's the only thing that made it palatable to me was the fact that they were like, okay, we're making this part of a bigger story. It's not just a boning scene. Uh, you know, that and Jon Snow's butt, which has taken the internet by storm. It's taken my household by storm. The wife was a big fan of that scene. It's did a you nice guys butt. Have, did you guys have a really special Sunday or? <laughs> no, get her blonde wig and you know, reenact it on the floor. No, it's a good idea. You know, Halloween is coming. You'd have to lose like an entire foot of height in order to get into that. So, well, hold on. That is true. John was a little, John looked like he was mounting a dragon there for a bit. (laughs) All right. So, we talked about how episode seven shuffled the deck. Uh, Let's get a a logistics count here on where the forces of the living stand in, in this face off with the dead. So, coming into season eight, I wanted to just lay out the battlefield and see. Who's aligned with who? What assets do they bring to the fight? Uh, and what potential difference they can make in the fight? And right now, the, the odds are stacked completely against the living, but let's try to see going forward where we expect to start season eight off. So let's start with the Lannister forces. They're part of the living, but we don't really know whether or not Cersei's going to keep them in King's Landing, if somehow Jamie could come back and rally them and have them join the fight the last minute, or if Cersei has some longer play with the information that Jamie's bringing north. Let's just say, you know, they had 10,000 men at Cashley Rock, 5,000 left back at King's Landing, gold cloaked, rest of their army, maybe, what, 90,000? Sound about right? Okay. How many unsullied do you think had formed up in front of King's Landing? Well, again, we're talking about Game of Thrones, which throws around a thousand quite loosely. Um, I, you know, again, from the the three hundred style CGI replication of of bodies out there, it looked like thousands upon thousands. But it it doesn't seem likely. I mean, when we first saw the Unsullied when they were first formed up at Marine, uh, it, it's almost like their numbers have grown, which doesn't make any sense. There should be fewer of them. 
Yeah, because she didn't seem to have freed that many. There was a larger, their number of forces, just looking by scale, seemed to equal the number of the dead at the end. So let's just say somehow they've multiplied. By the visuals of what we saw, maybe they've forgotten how many she freed or how many she left behind even, but let's just say there's 100,000. Then the the Dothraki, there was 100,000 originally, but there's no way that she could have brought all of them over. So let's say maybe 30,000 of them. Wildlings, did John send all of them to Eastwatch? I mean, there weren't that many to begin with. So when they came down, you got to remember the Wildlings came down with men, women, and children uh, came into Castle Black. And, and, and from there, I think that he sent a fighting force uh, but it wouldn't be every man, woman, and child. I imagine it would be just kind of a, a force to occupy East Watch. It didn't look like that many there, but again, we only saw the watchtowers. We didn't see down into uh, the hold to see how many people were, were there. Um, it, it's hard to say. If you had taken the women and children, let them a little bit further south, start to farm the land like had been promised, and you put all the fighting, uh, the men of fighting age to the wall... I don't know that any of them are going to be left. So we can't even really count them in the fighting force. I think we've also seen the efficacy of wildlings against the, the army of the dead at Hardhome. It's not going to be, uh, it's not going to be much, uh, it's going to impede them in any way. In fact, you've already seen the army of the dead marching through Eastwatch. So uh, their ability to impede, if they're not dead already, is quite limited to begin with. I would almost count them out. Yeah, so let's take the wildlings off the board. Another one we can take off the board is probably Euron's fleet. Yes, he has his you know his miraculous thousand ships, but as we've seen, the the dead don't swim; they don't go near the water. So, what benefit could Euron's fleet provide other than transportation? Dunkirk, baby, evacuations. Yeah, evacuations, or uh, they didn't seem to have any kind of. Uh, well, I don't want to say this because I'm probably wrong. Did they have cannons? Could they shell the land? Yeah, I'm not sure Euron's fleet is capable of bombardment uh, from sea to land. We obviously saw them firing on other ships uh, outside of Casterly Rock, uh, but it doesn't seem like they were firing at Casterly Rock itself. I, I'd say by the survival of the Unsullied, they didn't take any sort of shelling from those ships, so probably not. But again, you would imagine at, at close range, at least, they could fire uh, on some uh, uh, on some beach-going whites. Yeah, but <laughs> some beach-going whites. Yeah, it's a scene that uh, I, I don't think we're going to see. But yeah, so I think they're pretty much off the board. The Northern Army with John, there's roughly 20,000. Uh, that's equaled by the Golden Company, which is coming over from Essos. If they make it, that's 20,000 sellswords, horses and elephants. Do we have a chance here, potentially, of a white elephant? God, I hope not. I, you know, again, it's becoming a bit of a carnival over on the Army of the Dead. So they got giants now. They got a dragon. Throwing some elephants. I mean, I guarantee you this: if an elephant does show up in Westeros, Night King's getting one. (laughs) I'm not trading my dragon for an elephant, but they're loyal. the The Golden Company is notorious for being loyal to their contracts. So I could see them staying on and fighting to the end. So inhuman forces, let's say roughly with everybody, we've got half a million. The dead look pretty close to that. So that gets me here to what I think is the only differentiator between the living and the dead that, you know, the super weapons that uh, the living have. The two living dragons for me, they're useless at this point. What can you do? They're vulnerable to ice spears. Forget the scorpion. If you have the 
the White Walkers, stationed with spears, and we assume they can all throw them as well as the Night King did, with Olympic gold medal accuracy and distance. Don't you think that Daenerys would be foolish to bring them anywhere near to really close quarter combat? I mean, yes, but at the same time, that's like saying that the you know the U.S. Air Force and Navy are silly to fly sorties over enemy territory, right? I mean, you know there's going to be anti-aircraft guns. You know things can take you out, surface-to-air missiles, and you know other fighters and stuff like that. But the the fact is, is that you still take that risk. So the fact that they can blow out swaths of like imagine this, uh, you take out several lieutenants. Uh, with one blast of fire or, or one, you know, one strafing run, it might be a, a chance you're willing to take, uh, especially if you can keep them occupied on the ground with other things. Yeah, but the U.S. military and the U.S. Air Force doesn't have only two planes. <laughs> That's a very good point. If you had two planes, you're not going to start, you know, going low to the ground. You're going to keep them up high and you're going to try to keep them safe. Yes, if if you're willing to go in for a strafing run and try to take out you know, the key leadership, that they're worth it. But other than that, they're negated. On top of that, you know, you have now the Knight's Dragon, which seems faster, more deadly. They can fire, he can fire consistently. And what weakness does he have? The Scorpion couldn't kill a living dragon. You had trouble, seven guys, or at that point, let's say it was 12 of the band of Merry Men going north, to kill one white polar bear that was standing still, essentially trying to, to eat Thoris. That's true, but that polar bear was very easy to take out once it came in contact with Dragonglass. So I think the point being is that this is a marked weakness of any of these guys, except for the Night King, which we're not sure what could kill him. We don't know if Dragonglass is effective. But with everybody else, we know that it's not just a sensitivity to it. It is an outright allergy. So are we going to start getting uh, Dragonglass-tipped scorpions? I hope not. Uh, it's the only potential way, or maybe my old theory of a, a dragon net where you try to catch them. Uh, but I think the only asset that the humans have to survive is Bran. Okay, Bran, his super green seeing, his his super green sight has only gotten better. Did you notice that Sam, when he references the wedding, Bran is able to immediately and accurately jump right back into that scene, whereas before he would have trouble. You know, almost like you're fast-forwarding and rewinding through a DVD. Bran now has the ability to, on cue, find information. I mentioned before when we first saw the dragons and their abilities that technology wins wars. And in this case, you can consider the dragon's technology, right? It's, it's aerial firepower. It's something nobody's seen before. They're relatively impervious to all the weapons that we've seen in the show. That combined with information, that's what wins a war, right? Information and technology together, that side is typically going to win a war. And now they have the power of information. And you're absolutely right. We saw Bran and Sam working together. Uh, one of our listeners, the Fonz, actually wrote in and pointed this out that, you know, if Bran has a reference point, he can go right to it. And Sam has the reference points. Uh, this was also echoed in an article by Mashable. So this gives John and Danny a really big advantage in this battle. The only question that remains is, does the Night King have similar vision? We've seen him creep into Bran's head before. Can he do the same thing? Also, Bran let us in on a limitation to his power. Uh, green seers has always been the impression that they can see past, current, and future events. Bran states there's a limit. He tells Sam he can see things in the past and things happening right now. So possibly the future is something that he will develop, but right now the ability to not see the future could be mitigated by the ability of the Night King to project false information 
Or if they get too confident, oh, look, a raven told us that the Night King and the army have just broken through the wall. Oh, that's true. Do that two or three times, then feed Bran false information. That would be devastating to the living. Right. I think that he's definitely an asset to the North, but he's an asset that's got to be taken with care. Also, as we see him becoming more and more detached, I think that in this scene, there was a little bit of warmth between him and Samwell, but you do see him becoming more attached, and it could be a sort of situation uh, like Dr. Manhattan in The Watchmen, where he becomes completely uh, disassociated with the world and stops caring, right? It doesn't consider him himself a Stark or doesn't care who wins. Well, he better, he better start paying attention and caring real fast. He's a living body. We assume he can die just like anyone. In a wheelchair, if the undead overrun... Winterfell, he's done. So you, you got to take Bran somewhere safe. You got to pull him south and protect him. Do you think also now, it's talking about human assets or the living's asset, now that Arya has Littlefinger's face, is it inevitable that she's going to serve the living and, and wear his face back to King's Landing and possibly go after Cersei? I thought it was interesting that people said, oh, well, it's too bad Arya killed Littlefinger. Now she can't take his face. And I was like, I thought that was the... That's kind of how you took somebody's face is that you killed them first. So I don't understand where the where the conflict is there necessarily, but I'd, I'd really like Littlefinger to be to be put to rest peacefully and not make another appearance uh, as, as Arya. Uh, I like the fact that they folded her back into herself in the sense that she had that moment with Sansa on the wall. Uh, making her a much more relatable human being, uh, and I, I would I would like them to continue that uh, narrative. Yeah, I think without a doubt she can she can wear his face. You got to remember, how did she kill Walter Frey? She slit his throat. She did very much the same thing. She didn't injure the face, so we have every reason to believe that she can skin that and wear that mask, and and that wasn't done by accident. Uh, so I think in looking at all these assets. Unless something dramatic happens, that uh, the Lannisters do get involved and add their supportive men, the living are going to face an uphill battle where maybe this season they saved all of our major character deaths for a bloodbath that's going to come next season. Because I don't see any way this ends uh, with the, the living on top. One of the opinions that's been widespread on Twitter that I really like is the idea that Season eight will consist of two movements, essentially. One will be the battle against the Night King, and that might even be really quick. It might be one or two episodes, and he's vanquished. And then the true battle begins, the Civil War of Westeros. Um, it's an interesting way to look at it, because personally, I looked at it as, okay, we got six episodes, and these two things will be happening concurrently. Um, but it would be interesting if they actually broke it up, where you had movement one, was the battle between the living and the dead movement two was of the people who remain now the civil war breaks out um if both happened at the same time that would be incredibly chaotic and that could be a lot of fun to watch too did you also find we, we've for you know the dragons as a, a a viable weapon for the last let's say season and a half that they've been a threat we haven't viewed them as anything menacing because they're on our side when they come in you're like yeah great woo here they come to save the day this time to have an opposing weapon of mass destruction, I found myself dreading that he was on scene. Sure, it was inspiring. It was just awe-inspiring, but it was also dreadful to watch. When they were passing by the dragon pits and they, they spoke of Balerion and how 
dragons, you know, at one point were able to just roam freely and they might just kill you someday as they're flying by. They were, they were free to do what they wanted. And Daenerys kind of mentions that as they were tamed, they became smaller and smaller. Here you see Viserion uh, unleashed. And it is the sort of thing where we never saw those three dragons that Daenerys had attack King's Landing. It would be horrific. It would be like the firebombing of Dresden. There would be panic in the streets. The whole city would burn down, mass death. Daenerys, for all intents and purposes, really used uh, Drogon in a very calculated, almost surgical way, uh, keeping it away from the city, doing it strictly in a military sense. And even when she used all three dragons up north, it was against an army of the dead in an open field, right? Here, we have the possibility of, again, a, a dragon that is nearly impervious uh, to anything we've seen uh, that also can fire a constant stream of God knows what uh, with the Night King flying him and raise the dead as he goes by. Uh, this could be, the, the first attack will be dreadful. Imagine if season eight opens up with the army of the dead closing in on Winterfell. How do you think Winterfell would handle a, a direct dragon attack after the way the wall went down? You want to talk about breaking people's hearts? You could break the entire alliance. You could have humanity, this great collection of the forces, immediately just spread out to the wind and everybody run for the hills. Now, another way to look at that, though, is that people, you know, much like wartime in, in America, uh, when it when it starts hitting home, when those casualties start to mount, uh, like like what happened with Vietnam, World War II, uh, then it starts to get real for for the citizenry. And in this case, this has been a far off war. You know, people don't care about the Night's Watch. Those guys are out there doing their thing. And I think that that first attack might rally everyone. People might go, you know, uh, forget one white showing up at King's Landing. This is an army we're being marched upon, and. It's, you have no choice now. You have to go fight. And I think that that might play into the hands of humanity. Uh, might be a little more optimistic of viewpoint than this show warrants, but uh, who knows? The only, if we're going to take away something good from a white dragon, is that at least it appears anyone who is killed by Viserion's blue flames, we can pretty confidently say they're not coming back as a white, that there's nothing left of them. So unless, God forbid, this power, if you're hit by it, they convert also. Uh, I think it's slightly a blessing that at least the army of the dead won't just multiply exponentially just with one giant strafing run. Also, to bring that up, I think a lot of people have been asking, oh, what happened to Tormund? Uh, he's fine, guys. There's no way they're going to throw away a death like that. Unless maybe he's like in contract talks and they're like, well, this way we can leave it up in the air. Who knows where he's going to be? But come on, they're not, they're not throwing away a death that easily. So another alliance question that sort of got into my head is, is what's going on with Tyrion? And on the Instacast, I said, clearly he's heartbroken over Daenerys. He's standing in the boat. He's, uh, you know, he's apparently either listening in or at least aware that uh, that Jon Snow and Daenerys are in the chambers together. And my guess was he's heartbroken. He had feelings for Daenerys. Um, Then kind of had a second thought. I said, well, maybe he was just uh, feeling guilty. Maybe he struck a deal with Cersei. Now, we saw him come out of that meeting with Cersei unscathed. Uh, it seemed like he was saying goodbye to Jamie. Everyone thought he was going to die in there. And he comes out of there. Now, it could be because Cersei knows she's got to leave him alive in order for her, her fake-out move to, to succeed. If she kills Tyrion, everyone knows that there is no alliance and she would get wiped out immediately. But it also could be that they struck a deal. I don't know if that necessarily plays out. 
So the un- only other thing you can think of is that he's uh, that he's just upset that he wasn't consulted. He is the hand of the queen, and he wasn't really asked about this move, uh, as odd as it sounds, to you know share a bed with Jon Snow. Well, we know that Daenerys isn't Tyrion's typical woman. Even up until this episode, still has an affinity for whorehouses. Uh, so I, I don't think he's necessarily in love with Danny, even though he is slightly hurt that she comments that John is too little and that uh, you know, Tyrion isn't the bravest. So even though he does have some ego, I don't believe it's it's remote, it's it's emotionally motivated. From what you listed, there is an additional possibility. What if Tyrion's upset because at a time of war? For Danny to get involved in an emotional relationship, that can't help. When you start involving feelings uh, into strategic decisions, it never ends well. And that's echoed by the director. Uh, Jeremy Podesta said, from his point of view, Tyrion has always seemed three steps ahead. So this is a cerebral uh, issue. And he says that as long as there's a professional alliance between Daenerys and Jon, that's something everybody wants. Uh, it's a helpful alliance. But uh, if it gets personal, there's a potential for things to get very messy. And historically, nothing good comes out of relationships becoming more complicated. So essentially, uh, it's just Tyrion. This this compounds any complications that might come out of it. Again, there could be a vulnerability there. Um, so he doesn't like it from that perspective. And I think that really gets at the heart of, of what you're saying, Big D. Yeah, any time that your heart gets involved in making logical decisions, it it doesn't do well. You look at some of the struggles that Daenerys had had early on when she was shacked up with Dario Naharis. Maybe Tyrion feels he's got her on the right path. She's moving. She's making smart decisions. She's swiftly moving, and that end is in sight. And this might not be the time to be shacking up with your, your nephew. Yeah, and that fissure kind of brings us to a couple other questions, which is if we don't know what's going to happen with John and Daenerys, we don't know how Tyrion is processing all that, there's still a lot left up in the air, as we alluded to at the top of the podcast. Uh, there are a lot of wild cards going into season eight, things that we just can't quite figure out, that episode seven popped into the forefront, and they have us scratching our heads a bit. Yeah, upon second viewing, you know, when John, we have the, the fighting pit scene. Everyone is, is shocked and horrified by the white in the box, except for Kyburn. Now, we know he's, you know, he, he's out there and he enjoys the, 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 the dark crafts and he's responsible for bringing back the mountain, building Daenerys' giant dragon-killing crossbow. Do you think his inquisitive mind and his lack of fear uh, might be a glimmer of hope that he could be an asset in the fight against the Night King and the dead? There's two ways to look at his reaction. One is just what you said, that he's inquisitive. Uh, he's wondering you know, how, what other vulnerabilities might be present or how can we slaughter these things en masse. On the other hand, you know, Kyburn's a pretty dark character and he could also be thinking of how to weaponize this. And again, we've seen that he was able to reanimate the mountain, but we don't know by what method and what the limitations of the mountain are. Clearly in this case, the mountain is a threatening and imposing being, but we don't know uh, if there are weaknesses there. He definitely seems impressed when he when he picks up that hand. But I think that Kyburn has shown that he does have a, an, an odd sense of setting things right uh, with taking out of Maester Pycelle. Uh, he's not necessarily a 
entirely black hat character and and again consistent with George R R Martin's ability to make these uh darker shaded characters that aren't entirely bad and could can and could help. Yeah, I think they've also focused really heavily this season on Kyburn being a problem solver. Even going back to last season with the planning of the uh, the attack on the, the Sept of Baelor and, and this season with problem solving the crossbow, the scorpion for the dragon. He's a problem solver. So it would be great to see if he can't necessarily figure out a way to stop the Night King from resurrecting the dead. But if he could somehow resurrect his own army on behalf of Cersei, they might not even need the Golden Company. Well, that would be boring as hell, Big D. What? Raising a dead army is protection? No, I'm I'm good on dead. Okay. Okay. So, no more dead. But one last thing that we saw in that scene. Was it uh, a little strange to see Braun pull Podrick off to the side while that big conversation's going on? Is there a chance that Braun's having second thoughts on which side he's backing? So, I hosted a viewing party, and at my viewing party, we saw Braun... Uh, pull Podrick aside, and everybody immediately flashed back to the Red Wedding. We're like, oh shit, here we go. There's going to be a mass slaughter in in the Dragon Pit. Uh, And instead, it ended up not portending to anything terribly bad anyway. But since then, I've been informed that the actor who plays Braun, Jerome Flynn, and the actress who plays Cersei, Lena Headey, uh, had a relationship, they had a falling out, and it seems that they will not be on screen together. And in fact, if you go back through all the seasons of uh, Game of Thrones, apparently they have never actually had an interaction on screen. I thought that was really interesting. Oh, come on. You got to put that aside. They're professionals. You didn't need it to be so front and center in the scene. You could have had Braun off to the side, just walk off and pull security. He could have been doing something else. He could have not even come into the pit. That conversation was clearly shown to us for a reason. Jamie leaves King's Landing, doesn't give Braun a heads up. Maybe Braun's already gone. Maybe there's something else going on. I got to really, really hope. Braun's a a crowd favorite uh, that he survives and that he still has a chance at the end to do the right thing and, and back the right horse. I don't buy that it was just actors squabbling. She might have just been turned off by the fact that he's increasingly using more and more eyeliner on screen. That is an odd couple, though. I know. He seems significantly older. And he just seems weathered. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, some women like that. It's swarthy. He looks leathery. You know, he's, yes, he's older, but it looks like it's been a rough couple years. Yeah, well, you know, the heart wants what it wants, which brings us to the next question. What does the Night King want? I think we've taken it for granted that uh, he is a mindless force that is coming south, but we know that he was made of man, and presumably he's got some sort of plan. He's, he seems intelligent in his design, especially if you believe that he he laid out a trap. So is he just a virus that was unleashed by the children of the forest and cannot be stopped, or does he have a goal? I don't buy mindless force. He seems calculating precise. He's been waiting there for a few thousand years. It wasn't by accident. Everything seems very deliberate and with thought. Uh, so I think he his end goal doesn't seem to be killing the most people he can. He has to be going after someone specific or a location specific. 
Yeah, some viewers pointed out that when the white on the box popped out of the box, uh, he ran straight for Cersei, didn't roam around, didn't go for the Hound, who was closer, went straight for Cersei uh, in an exact you know beeline over to her. And there is a question of whether the Night King is strictly pointed at the heart of man, which would be the Iron Throne, as it, uh, in Westeros at least, and if he not necessarily wants to sit on the throne, but wants to crush it. Uh, and that kind of brings out about the question that, you know, you have Daenerys saying that she wants to crush the wheel. And there is one way to do that. You can kind of establish more egalitarian society, break that uh, cycle of uh, of politic and war. But at the same time, a different way to do it entirely would be the Night King's method, which is come down, crush everything beneath you, roll right over the throne. And now everyone's equal because everyone's dead. Yeah, I don't think he's coming after any, you know, to crush the throne or anything political. That's so beneath him, it seems, that that's a a worry of man. He's going south for a mystical purpose, I believe, Uh, whether it's to fulfill a prophecy, end a prophecy. I'm still leaning he's going after Bran. He's really been pretty pretty intent on killing Bran the multiple times that he's had him close. So why wouldn't it be logical to think that that chase will continue south of the wall? So one theory, and this is, again, I get the right to be tinfoil like once or twice a season. You mentioned earlier this season that you thought the Night King and Bran might be connected, if not the same person. And you notice that the Night King did not take out Drogon north of the wall at at Eastwatch. Now, clearly, you had the quote-unquote good guys. You had Daenerys, you had uh, Drogon, and you had Jon Snow in the shot. And so he went for Viserion instead. It could be, again, if... Bran survives this war, uh, goes in the future, and 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 sees that uh, that Cersei does win. If this is Bran, or or the Night King is being influenced by Bran, uh, that March South could be. Listen, I know what happens. I know that that the good guys lose, and the only thing that can stop Cersei is the army of the dead. Move them south. Again, it is far-fetched. There's not a lot of evidence to back it up, but it's it would get, lend motivation to what he is trying to do. The showrunners themselves have indicated he's just plain death. He doesn't choose sides. He doesn't want anything. He was made to kill, and that's what he does. He kills. It's it's He's the great equalizer. I, I don't buy it. Why would you have this character who's, who's the, the focus of so much of the story that's rich in character development, and he's just mindless death. That's all he cares about. Uh, the Night King, as emotionless as he is, has to have a motive. If he doesn't have a motive, and at the end he's he's the Terminator, just going south killing, uh, I think it's it's sad. I think it would be a letdown. There has to be a reason for what he's done. Every character in the show has a reason, right or wrong. They're doing what they think is best to advance their cause, or like like Braun. You know, he's trying to take care of himself and survive. To have it at the end be something that wasn't self-preservation or wasn't any purpose, why did we just watch 70-something hours of TV when it was just a killing machine in the end against man? Isn't it strange though, that he's somewhat likable? Like, that's the weird thing to me is that I kind of I kind of find myself liking him. Yeah, because he looks at us and like lifts his arms like, what? What? <laughs> I got a dragon? What? What? What you know? He doesn't mix bones. He's 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 very to the point. Just stands there. You know he's patient. Uh, it's easy to look intelligent when you just stay quiet. If he was out there running his mouth, you'd know what was going on. 
So yes, he's likable because we just want to know what's going on in there. And I, I don't buy that it's a lack of purpose or direction. So we're contacted a lot by fans of Game of Thrones. Uh, and everyone has their fan favorites, uh, whether they're fans of the Night King or Jon Snow or Daenerys or dragons even. We, we get all this and we really want to know who's the cream of the crop. Who, is, who are the top characters, the top scenes of the season? And so with that, we've decided to introduce On the Thrones inaugural Throny Awards. What the fuck are the Throny Awards? Well, Big D's going to tell you. So we decided it would be fun to come up with some categories uh, for the season and let people vote on their favorites. Uh, And the categories that we have are Best Hero, Best Villain, Best Performance by a Non-Human, Biggest Fan Gripe, Best Sex Scene, Best Battle, and Who Would You Want to Date Your Sister? So, Gene, you want to run us through these categories and see who's in the running for this prestigious award. Absolutely. Starting off, we're going to go with Best Hero. Now, obviously, everybody loves Jon Snow, so he's there. But we thought, you know what? We want to let the fans speak. So, also, we've got Daenerys, and Daenerys wouldn't be anything without Drogon. So, there are separates in this category. Arya Stark and Samwell Tarly. Those are the five for Best Hero. Yeah, we had to add Samwell because it's not always Braun that wins. You know, without Sam, you know, changing the bedpans and transcribing scrolls, where would we be? So sometimes, you know, a hero isn't in the best shape. He's not like Gendry. He's not going to run to the wall, but he might save the day. So for best villains, we have the recently deceased Littlefinger, uh, the Night King, Cersei, a perennial favorite, Euron, and the reanimated Viserion. Yeah, again, we knew people would say, well, Viserion's not a villain. He's... He's just a creature that's been changed. We're talking reanimated blue fire Viserion. Just roasting people. Which brings us to the best performance by a non-human. Again, Viserion pops up in this category as well, as does Drogon. We also have Nymeria the wolf and Longclaw the sword. And finally, our personal favorite, White in a Box. Yeah, that White in a Box, that was a pretty good performance. It was terrifying. He looked, he's got to be a tiny, skinny actor you know, to wear all those prosthetics and still look menacing and let's keep in mind the two dragons in this category are both living versions which brings us to the biggest fan gripe a lot of people had complaints about season seven so we came up with the top five Braun saving jamie from the river and that is the entire sequence the tackle from uh one inch deep water into the depths of the marianas trench all the way to sprouting up 60 yards away uh with a coat full of armor and uh, a golden with a co- hand. With a coat full of armor? <laughs> with a coat of armor and a golden hand. Also, the jetpacking, that is just one category on its own, how fast people were able to travel. Uh, Viserion and chains. Again, Big D's explained it as trained polar bears, but a lot of people feel that's a, that's a gripe-worthy moment. Uh, Mission Impossible, i.e. the Magnificent Seven going north of the wall, just the entire idiocy of the plan. And finally, Ed Sheeran. I mean, Ed Sheeran deserves to be there for the way he's haunted your real life. Now, Big D, you just told me that he also, uh, I, I had my, I had the last laugh on Ed Sheeran because he left Twitter? Well, I know right after the show had aired, he swore off Twitter because it was so negative. Uh, but that didn't stop him from popping into the shelter that you volunteer at. Am I correct? That's right. Yeah, he came to the Arizona Animal Welfare League and, uh, right after his show in Phoenix and was uh, cuddling kittens 
Uh, so that was a really exciting moment. By the way, really weird looking dude. Did you decide to pile on and, and tell him some of the problems you had and the listeners had? No, no. Just had to leave Ed Sheeran alone. I mean, it's it's kind of that thing where you're like, oh man, if I ever meet this guy, I'm going to give him an earful. And then you meet him, you're like, ah, yikes, no. What, what did he end up taking home? He didn't take home anything. He just came over to, to cuddle some kittens, I think. I'll have to double check on that. So I, I was not in the cattery uh, at the same time as Ed Sheeran. So I don't know exactly what he what he did in there. Okay, well, we're going to transition from the cattery and Ed Sheehan cuddling kittens to best battle. Uh, in best battle, we have the Battle of Blackwater Rush, uh, which was the, what did you call it? The the Burninator, also known as Fields of Fire, and they called it the Loot Train Battle as well. It's got many names. Yeah, we also have Cashley Rock, even though I questioned whether it should be in here. It technically is a battle. The Unsullied killed a lot of people. A lot of Lannisters, then we had you know a mixed sea battle, so it's in here. Uh, we have White Gate, or also known as the Battle at Eastwatch. Uh, the Taking of High Garden, another limited battle scene, but beautifully shot. Some people might like it. Uh, final entry is the Battle of the Squid. We have Pirates of the Caribbean on the sea, uh, with the Silence, Euron, Yara, Theon, and a lot of dead sand snakes. So... Battles were easy to find in this uh, season, but sex scenes, not so much. So we had to get really loose, no pun intended, uh, with this category. So the best sex scene nominees are, uh, of course, boat sex between Daenerys and Jon. Uh, there was the uh, oral sex between Grey Worm and Missandei. Uh, Cersei and Jaime, again, another oral scene. And finally, stretching the bounds of what we would consider sex, there was some digital sex or implied digital sex between Ilaria and Yara uh, right before the silence attacked. Yes. And to let the listeners in on a little funny side thing here, my wife was in the office as we were setting up and we were struggling to find sex scenes. So I asked my wife, I said, wasn't there some dry humping between Ilaria and Yara? I think there might have been a hand down the pants and instantly Gene springs into action. He's like, I'm watching it now. He's like, this is for research. He goes, yep, yep, there's a hand down the pants. There's a hand down the pants. So this does count in the category. Not as exciting as the others, but equally shocking that this season had less than four sex acts. Yeah, people have said there, there's so much less nudity this season. And I think it's, I don't know if it's a testament to the maturing, maturing process of the show or if it's a testament to the fact that these people are getting famous and their contracts are getting a little uh, tighter on the on the stipulations there. Uh, we did see a, you know, again, a, a beautiful uh, a shot of a Kit Harrington's ass, though. So at least that's still a treat that we can indulge in. It's like the Statue of David's carved out of marble. I know, I broke an eye on it. That thing's... But it, it, you talked about all the dick jokes to start off the episode, where you have cock rules the world and sex, and it's become as non-sexual as can be. So it's kind of odd. Speaking of non-sexual, the final category, who would you want to date your sister? So first, we had Samuel Tarley. We know that he treats Gilly quite well. We have Podrick. He was a fan favorite with the the, the working ladies in the brothels. In King's Landing. So Tripod is in there. Jon Snow. He may know nothing, but he seems to have learned some stuff in the bed. This one is from my wife. She said, you have to add Jorah because, quote, he's nice, loyal, and he could protect my sister. Now, Gene, uh, I know you have a sister. Would you want Jorah minus the grayscale dating your sister? 
I wouldn't mind Jorah mining the sorry mining my sister. Jesus, Whoa. I wouldn't mind. I wouldn't mind Jorah minus the grayscale dating my sister, provided my sister was minus her husband. But my sister is a doctor, so she could really help Jorah out. I think a lot better than uh, than Samuel Tarley does. She's read a couple books. Uh, and the last one in the categories, if you want your sister to really have some fun, is Dickon Tarley. Our, our our illustrious linebacker and punter shoulder bads. Uh, I think he was gone far too soon. We apologize, ladies, for that horrible chain of events. Well, you can honor his memory by voting him who you'd like to date your sister. Unless you're spiteful and jealous and you, you want him for yourself and not your sister. So if you've been motivated to vote for your favorite characters, favorite scenes in Game of Thrones Season 7, you can vote at shadontv.com slash thronies. You can read all these with the full descriptions of the nominees. We'd love to hear what you think, and we'll present those uh, in next week's Season 7 recap. Sounds exciting. Go and vote. It'll be something fun, and hopefully we could do this you know, at least one more time for Season 8. So that concludes this week's episode of Shad on TV, Game of Thrones edition. Be sure to follow us on social media and share with a friend. We're on Twitter, Snapchat, and Instagram at Shad on TV. On Facebook, search for Shad on TV podcast. The website is ShadOnTV.com. And if you'd like to vote on the Thronies, it's ShadOnTV.com slash Thronies. Email is host at Shad on TV. If you'd like to write into us, again, the small council will be coming up later this week. We've got tons of great emails, but we'd love to hear from you, your opinions on the deep dive, your opinion on the season finale. Go ahead and write to us again at host at shadowntv.com. We're everywhere fine podcasts can be found, including iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe. And if you stop by iTunes, please do leave a review. That helps the podcast grow. Uh... A lot of fans have been asking, what's up with Raj? Uh, Raj is doing a new project called Show Spoilers uh, with our friend Kevin Brackett from Real Spoilers. Uh, He's been a guest on Shout the Movies. Uh, If you'd like to connect with Show Spoilers, find them on Twitter at All the Spoilers. Yeah, so that's cool. A lot of people have been asking about Raj. If you want to get your Raj fix, it sounds like they're going to be doing first-run TV shows. Do you know what they have planned? Yeah, so they just did uh, the season seven, episode seven of Game of Thrones, and uh, they did a great job on that. Uh, it's a little longer format. It's about 90 minutes, and then they will be doing Mr. Robot next. Yeah, very cool. Kevin had joined us on Shot the Movies for, I think it was the Fifth Element Review. He's a good guy. Uh, the sh- real spoiler guys do a quality program, so we're happy that Roger found an outlet. Give him support if you're a Roger fan. Uh, And we'll put the link in the show notes so you guys can find them easily. All right. On behalf of my co-host, Big D Dick Ebert, I'm Gene Lyons. Be sure to join us on Thursday for the Game of Thrones Small Council. Thanks for listening. And as always, be sure to knock twice before joining us on the throne.